What does it mean to follow Jesus? Today's bonus audio will help you find answers to that question. The insights may surprise you and will almost certainly motivate and challenge you. Ray Vanderland shares on what exactly the first followers of Jesus were signing up for when they began to follow the rabbi. You can learn more about Ray and his ministry by visiting thattheworldmayknow.com. There is a Jewish custom, older than the time of Jesus, that when you come together in worship to hear God speak his word, you begin by telling God and one another where your heart is. Now, Jewish folks use a part of scripture they call Shema from Deuteronomy 6. So let's join our ancient Jewish brothers and sisters, including Jesus and his disciples, I'm sure, and before we go to the word of God, to tell God and one another where it is we stand in heart, soul, and strength. Say the Hebrew after me, of just a little bit of it, to make that link. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Now let's say the English together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. Amen. Now I bless God for you. You're evangelical. Many of you have given your heart and soul to Jesus. I know you're not Jewish. And not many of you are anyway. People, there is nothing more significant in the world to a follower of Jesus than that he or she wants to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our might. And you raise the roof when you say Shema. Join me again in the English. (laughs) Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. Amen. Bless God. Awesome. Listen tonight as God speaks. And you can look these up in your Bible when you sit back down and we look at them together. Just hear tonight the words of God, first through the writing of Matthew. As Jesus walked along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was also called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net, for they were fishermen. Jesus said, Lech acharai, come after me, and I will teach you how to catch people. At once, Peter and Andrew dropped their nets and followed Jesus. And then from the Gospel of Mark, Jesus went up on a hillside and sat down. He called those to him whom he wanted, and he chose 12, designating them as apostles that they might be with him. And then from Matthew, again, chapter 14, a student is not greater than his or her teacher, nor a servant than the servant's master. It is enough, it is good for a student to be like the teacher and a servant like the master. And then last, from Matthew again, 
And Jesus came to them and he said, go into all the world and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit of the living God. Teach them to obey everything I taught you. And for sure, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. These are the words of God for our hearts and our minds tonight. Amen. Amen. Please sit down. It's a great privilege for me to be here for a couple of reasons. By the way, if someone's cell phone rings, I'm gone. So you might want to turn them off. It's a great privilege for me to be here for a couple of reasons. One, I just honor you for your love for the Lord, for your desire to come here, for what this new community um, group and, and, and community means to the churches around the country. I bless God for you. You're an inspiration as well as an encouragement to all of us. But it's an even greater privilege for me to be here because I have a chance, an opportunity to share with you the Word of God. And to me, there is nothing more compelling and consuming, whether it's one-on-one or one-on-hundreds, to share the words of God as he's put them in one's heart. And I'm honored and, and privileged to be here and do that for just a few moments tonight. I... Thank John for a great introduction. I, I'm always blessed by introductions. I'm always nervous about them. I think I mentioned this maybe even last year. When you get an introduction that, that makes you sound good, God has a way of bringing you back to reality real soon. Usually you fall off the stage or something happens to make sure you know you're only human. Not so long ago, uh, the secretary came over the intercom and said, um, uh, your daughter is on line one. I picked it up. She was at that time about 12 years old. And I said, hello, this is the smartest man in the world. There was a long pause and this 12-year-old said, I must have the wrong number and hung up. <laughs> and God just has a way of reminding us who we are and who he is. I'd like to do something tonight that comes out of what's maybe in the center of my heart. I've spent a lot of my life in ministry looking at the Bible in its Jewish context. Lots of people do this, but that's been a consuming passion. That's where my education is. That's where my teaching is. And I try and understand what did it mean that God put the Bible in a Jewish setting. Very different than a Western setting. Doesn't mean the word doesn't speak to us. But it was very different for them. If someone said to me tonight, of all the Jewish stuff you've studied all these years and taught, what's the one thing that's the most radically different if you plug it into an Eastern Jewish setting? The answer is, to, without, I could say it instantly, discipleship. I don't think, I know I didn't, I don't think a lot of Christian folk really understand what discipleship meant in the world where Jesus first called disciples. Now, it takes a lot of chutzpah, to use a Jewish word. It takes a lot of um, intense assertiveness to come to a church, a new community like this, and to teach you about discipleship. You're noted around the world for your interest in discipleship. So I have to be a little bit careful. Do you know what chutzpah is? Is that a familiar word to, to folks in this part of the... Chutzpah is, is a word that's in the Bible. It's in a little different form, but it's an intense, persistent, in-your-face, I won't quit. Um, I heard a story recently. A little boy went to Hebrew school, a little Jewish boy, and the teacher was teaching this little boy 
um, that Jonah had been swallowed by a, a whale. So the little boy went off to school, and the teacher was also teaching about whales, fourth grade. And the teacher said to the little boy, to the class that the little boy was in, whales have big mouths and little throats, so they can't swallow big stuff. They have to chew it up first. The little kid said, I don't think so. This whale swallowed Jonah. I know the story. It's in my Bible. The teacher said, well, I'm sorry, that couldn't be. That whale would have to chew that up first. He could not have swallowed it. And this went on a couple of times until the teacher was a little bit annoyed and the child was frustrated. So finally the little boy said, well, I'll tell you, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him. I'm going to find Jonah and ask him. And the teacher said, well, what if Jonah isn't there? Kid said, you ask him then. (laughs) That's chutzpah. What I'd like to do tonight is to talk to you about discipleship, and I want to look at it broadly in light of those biblical passages we looked at, but I'd like to set it in its first century context. I've called a series of of messages that I've done on this subject, On This Rock. Say this scripture passage after me, right? Just stay seated a moment, please. Listen, you who pursue righteousness... And seek after God. God. Remember the rock from which you were cut. And the quarry from which you were hewn. Remember Abraham is your father. And Sarah gave birth to you. These are the very words of God. Thank you. That was Jewish. Amen. That's Isaiah. Now, the Jewish people have always understood that in one sense, the community of God's people is built on God as the solid rock. The Bible says this many times. They also understood that God was in the process of creating a community out of stones. Those stones were quarried out of God's great quarry. Abraham was the first, and then Sarah. And out of that quarry came David and Moses and Elijah and Deborah and, and, and Rebecca and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the great men and women of the biblical world. In the New Testament, the Bible tells us that, that the disciples are the stones that are the foundation stones on which God's community was being built. Jesus, the chief cornerstone. And then in 1 Peter, Peter, one of those first disciples of Jesus, said, Remember, when you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by people and chosen by God. First Peter chapter 3. Remember that you too are living stones being built into his house where he will live. On this rock, God is establishing his new community. What is that rock? The disciples. Jesus, yes. God, yes. He's the foundation stone. But in that building in which God lives, that community that is God's presence in his world, the stones are the stones that are quarried out of the great quarry out of which came Abraham and Rebekah and David and Bathsheba. Now, go with me, please, if you would, to the first century. And I want to plug this concept of discipleship as being the building stones of God's house 
the rocks on which God builds. Peter, on this rock I will build my church, Jesus said. And I'd like to look very briefly at what was discipleship in the first century. Maybe this is not new to you. It was shocking to me. Jesus went to Galilee. The map shows it. The colored area is the area to the west and north of the Sea of Galilee, which is encircled in yellow. That area was home to very religious Jewish people in the first century. I'd be tempted to call them Pharisees, but the moment I do, everybody thinks they're scum. I think that's very unfortunate. Jesus himself said, the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so do what they tell you. The Pharisees tried to prevent Jesus from being killed by King Herod. Paul says, long after he met Jesus, I am a Pharisee, not I was. Some Pharisees were men and women of God. But I won't say that. That area of Galilee was extremely devoted to God. These were passionately religious people. They were different than the Judeans. The Judeans had been there for a long time. The Galileans were recent immigrants. They settled on the shore of a freshwater lake, coming back from the Babylonian exile much, much later than the Judeans did, at least many of them, and they established a vibrant religious community in an area about the size of the city of Chicago called Galilee. That's where Jesus went. Now, the moment I got there, it hit me that that's the place in the world where discipleship was born. Discipleship was not a Judean thing. It was not a Babylonian thing, the Jews in Babylon. It was not the Jews in Egypt. It was the Jews in Galilee who practiced discipleship, rabbis and their disciples. And when Jesus got there, there was this vibrant model of people who were learning to follow and walk with God as disciples of the great rabbis. And Jesus stepped right into it and didn't do anything that different. He simply continued the process. And what makes that so compelling is that when he was finished, he made that process the process for the growth of his community from then on. He said to his disciples, you go make disciples. So that discipleship, as practiced by the Galileans, became the model for the whole church, the whole community of God's people. And I think it's helpful when one reads the Bible about discipleship with an eye to discipleship to say, now, what was it when Jesus established it as his model for how he wanted the disciples to be? There are three villages in particular where discipleship was widely known. They are in an area called the Triangle today. One is Chorazin, one is Capernaum, one is Bethsaida. Now, if I had more time, I'd love to take you to each one of those. We won't tonight. But those are the three cities where the Bible says most of Jesus' miracles were performed. He lived in Capernaum, which was the Harvard, Yale, Oxford of discipleship in those days. Nowhere greater in the history of rabbis and their disciples than was the city of Capernaum. Fairly rural area, not big city, not sophisticated culture, hasn't changed much to this day. Looks an, a lot today like it did then. It's a wonderful place to walk. Every town and village, a synagogue on every corner, extremely religious areas, the ruins of many of these synagogues, even from Jesus' time, this one, for example, still stands. You can sit in a synagogue he was in. It was the place where the Torah was loved 
and read and heard. Most people couldn't afford one, but it was read publicly on the Sabbath day so that the whole town could hear the word of God. But more than anything else, the life of the Galilee was dominated by the great rabbis and their disciples. So let's find out what they are. I've titled this piece, When the Rabbi Says Come. The rabbi says, Lech acharai in Hebrew. Come after me, meaning come and be like me. And the, the Jewish people say, when you follow a rabbi, you want to get so close to him that when he kicks up dust, it gets all over you. So you always want to be dusty. You always want to be covered by the dust of the rabbi. I love to say to my students in school, how dusty are you after that last weekend? You covered with dust? Or did it all get washed off this weekend? Let's stay dusty. I love that metaphor. Now, again, there's so much here. So I hope, I, I asked my wife to pray specifically tonight that I wouldn't try and bite off more than what I can share with you. I really want to look at discipleship. But come with me for just a moment and let's look at what was a rabbi. Jesus is called rabbi by seven different kinds of people. A Roman, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, his own disciples, the disciples of John. So he was clearly known as a rabbi. There were two kinds of rabbis in Jesus' world. There are Torah teachers. We call them teachers of the law in our English translation. Torah teachers. And there are rabbis with authority. In Hebrew, smicha. I'll get back to smicha in a minute. Torah teachers were limited. They were good teachers, but they weren't considered to be the great religious leaders of the day. There were many. The rabbis with authority were much, much more rare and they were the ones who were really known as rabbis. Not Torah teachers, but rabbis. In Matthew chapter 7, it says, And the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus came across to them as one of the great rabbis with authority. What were they like? Well, let me show you. First of all, the Torah teachers were called masters of Tanakh. Do you know the word Tanakh? Is that a familiar word? Good. Shake your head if, you, if, if not. Tanakh is what Jewish folks call their Bible. It's a word made up of three different uh, parts of three different words. Torah for ta, Navaim for na, and Chetuvim for k. Ta, na, k. Made up of Torah, Navaim, Chetuvim. What's Torah, Navaim, Chetuvim? Torah, first five books of the Bible. Navaim, all the history and prophet books. Chetuvim, all the writing books, like Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So it's the first five books, all the history and prophets, and all the writing books. And so they've created a word out of parts of those three called Tanakh. The rabbis were masters, in other words, of the Old Testament. Now I put that up here, and I look out at you, and I bet there are some Jews here who already know this. When I heard this the first time, I, I, I did not believe the rabbi that was talking. You know what it means to be a master of Torah? It means you know it by memory. Do you hear me? These people knew the whole Old Testament by memory. The whole thing. I don't mean the names of the books. I walked into a study program at Yeshiva University in New York City, a graduate program, where I was the only student 
I was the only non-Jew. I was the only student who didn't know the Old Testament by memory. Every single verse. And I don't mean you'd say to somebody, Isaiah 50, and they give you Isaiah 50. I mean you'd give them six words out of the middle of nowhere, and they'd give you the words before. Now, think about that for a moment. If that's what a rabbi was like, imagine what is going to be expected from a disciple. You know how I felt in the Jewish school? When those guys could quote every single verse in the Old Testament and I was doing the Christian thing, I think somewhere it says something like, doesn't it? It was profoundly humiliating. And for the first months, I was humiliated. And then it began to dawn on me, I was making my rabbi look bad. Not the one who stood in front of class, Jesus. Because I claimed he was my rabbi. I didn't know anything. They were masters of Tanakh. Second, they were master teachers. That's a whole study in itself. Parables, pithy sayings, wonderful ways of demonstrating truth. Jesus the best, of course. They're recognized by the community. They did not have an office. They were not ordained. They didn't get a title. They didn't have a seminary degree. They were recognized by the people of their communities for their giftedness. Many of them were healers. Now, again, I know what's going to happen. There will be people that that really strikes you for the first time. You mean other people than Jesus healed? You bet. Lots of them did. And then someone will say to me, well, did they really heal? The answer is, I don't know, but people thought they did. Jesus was not the only healer. Many others had, and I believe they were gifted people of God, and God did give them through prayer the power to pray and bring about healing on some occasions. But let's not debate that. When these people had become great teachers, had become masters of Tanakh, they received what is called smicha. Now say smicha. Say Say smicha. Smicha is a Hebrew word which is translated authority. Smicha meant that someone thought you were so gifted so trained, so passionate and devoted to God, so godly, and such a master teacher that you had authority directly from God to speak the meaning of his words. And that was huge. Not many people got smicha. How did you get it? You could only get smicha if two people who had that authority put their hands on your head in public and declared that you had it too. There's about a dozen people we know by name during Jesus' lifetime and 30, 40 years before and after, the 100-year period where he lived in the middle. There's about a dozen rabbis we know by name who had smicha. Two people who had it, put their hands on their heads and said, this person has smicha. And the community said, yes, we agree. Now, Jesus conducts himself as a rabbi with authority, with smicha. The question is, where does he get it? Well, you say he was born the son of God. I believe that with all my heart. But he was born a Jew. So he needed a public declaration of his authority. So where did he get it? Well, Jewish scholars have looked at this and they've said, take a look at Jesus' baptism. Do you remember the story? 
Jesus came down to the Jordan River. His cousin, I happen to think his teacher too, but that's another study. His cousin John was baptizing. John saw Jesus coming. Do you remember what John said when he saw him in the, at, at the distance? Look! We say, behold. Oh, sometimes I get so frustrated with translation. Behold the Lamb of God. That's good English. In Hebrew, it's, hey, look! <laughs> hey, look! The Son of God, who ta- uh, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Does that sound like authority? Yeah. But that's only one. Where's the other one? The heaven is ripped open. And God says, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen. Even to Jewish scholars, Jesus is the only rabbi in history who gets his smicha directly from God. (laughs) Do you understand what kind of a rabbi Jesus was, humanly speaking, not even looking at his divine nature? Jesus got his authority from John and from God. That changed me. Because as I went through studying in the Jewish world and I felt so inadequate and so uneducated and I knew so little of the book that I considered so, so important and I was so far from being what I wanted and yet it dawned on me that all people in that world followed rabbis and there was the great rabbi Hillel and Shammai and Akiva and Hanina ben Dosa and Shmuel and Honey the Circle Drawer, and all the great rabbis. And only one. God is smicha directly from God. And as he sent his disciples out, he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All of it. Go. I want to follow that rabbi. Now, it's those... Amen. Bless God. Maybe, maybe. It's those rabbis who had disciples. Now I got to teach you a new word. I'm doing good. Bless God. I got this watch. I bought a watch. It was three hours slow, so I moved to California. It didn't help. Um, <laughs> there's so much I want to. My heart is so full tonight because I believe in you so much. You, you don't understand how much. This new community phenomenon here has encouraged us believers around the country at people who want to become disciples. And yet I think there's pieces of this that could even inspire you to greater obedience to Jesus and and to understanding of his text. Now, the word I need to teach you is Talmud. Say Talmud. We translate Talmud as disciple. The plural, by the way, would be Talmidim. Say Talmidim. That's more than one. Shtaim Talmidim. Two Talmidim. Two disciples. Echad Talmid. One Talmid. We use the word disciple. I don't use that word when I teach my students. They all know this. I tell them the first day of class, we don't use the word disciple in this class. Why? 
Because disciple, in my opinion, has been so watered down in the Christian world that it doesn't come close to grasping the intensity that discipleship is all about. Now, there's nothing wrong with the word. It's a good word. Keep using it. I want students to learn what a Talmud is. What's the difference? A disciple, I'm sorry, people often think of a disciple as a student. That is, a person who wants to know what the rabbi knows, wants to know about the rabbi. My students, believe it or not, want to know what I know. Some want to know what I know because they like me. I think two of them. Some (laughs) want to know what I know because they like what I know. Again, a few. Most of them want to know what I know because then they can pass the test. That's not a disciple. A disciple, a Talmud, is someone who more than anything else in the whole world, listen to me, wants to be what the rabbi is. I'll say it again. A disciple in the first century... A Talmud is somebody who is consumed by a burning fire in their chest. They want to be just like the rabbi in his godliness. Now let me ask you an honest question. I don't know you, so I can ask this honestly without having any impressions. Are you a disciple? If you say yes then my question is, how badly do you want to be like Jesus? Does it consume you 24-7? Do you wake up thinking, how can I be more like Jesus today? Do you go to sleep thinking, how could I have been more like Jesus today? Do you find yourself every single place you go asking, how would I be like Jesus in this setting? And if the answer is no, I'm not questioning your salvation. I'm not questioning your relationship with God. I am saying, then you or me are not disciples. I was in a church recently, and the bulletin said, discipleship training, six Wednesday nights for an hour and a half. Oi, Gaval! You can't do... That's not even curiosity. Now, I'm sure what they did there on those Wednesday nights was wonderful, praise God. That isn't discipleship. People, if you ever get a chance to be somewhere where there are Jewish schools yet with rabbis and disciples, they have them in New York, I'll bet you they're here in Chicago, but they're definitely in Israel, you wouldn't believe what kind of intense commitment these disciples have. They sit at that rabbi's feet and drink in every single... Why do you think Jesus could never get away? Those guys were consumed wanting to be like Jesus. And I'll be real honest, I don't meet many disciples. I don't meet many people who at least show that kind, of compa- that kind of passion. How did a student become one? Go with me again. I need to bring you back to Galilee for just a few minutes. Very religious place. How did you become a disciple? Because I think if you discover where Jesus' disciples came from, 
it will blow your mind. It did me. All kids in the Galilee went to school. Elementary school is called Beth Sefer. It means place of reading or place of writing. Boys and girls about ages 5 to 12 went to the synagogue and they were taught by a Torah teacher. Not a rabbi, a Torah teacher. Their subject matter for boys was the first five books of the Bible, Torah. Now, the goal was, by the time you were 12, a boy hoped, prayed, that he would know the Torah by memory. How did you know if somebody did know the Torah by memory? They didn't get an award, they didn't get a diploma, but you were able as a boy to go to your first Passover. What does that mean? Well, it's not really your first Passover because Jewish boys started going to Passover as did Jewish girls as soon as you were old enough to eat solid food. First Passover meant the first Passover when you were considered a person of faith and could kill the lamb for your family. And if you killed the lamb for your family, that to a Galilean was a public direct, uh, declaration, this boy knows the Torah by memory. How old was Jesus at his first Passover? Twelve. What do you know about Jesus? He knew the Torah by memory. Now, I'd love to engage you on this. I can't with this many people because I get this answer. Wow, he was the son of God. He wrote it after all. Of course... I know he was the son of God. I believe this with all my heart. But Jesus came to earth to be a human. He says to his disciples in the book of John chapter 15, everything I learned, I taught you. Everything you what? You weren't born with it? No. Everything I learned, I taught you. Let Jesus be a man, a human too. Can you imagine how much this kid had a study to know the Torah by memory? not the picture I usually have had of Jesus, but I think it's there. Girls studied Psalms, Proverbs, um, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy for a different reason. And again, bless God, I'd love to share with you why their subject matter was a little bit different, but there won't be time. But you did that from ages 5 to 12. Then there was a second level. It's called Beth Midrash. Midrash, Midrash means to study. Here, only boys went It was at the synagogue, taught by a Torah teacher. The girls would marry as soon as they were old enough to have children. As soon as they menstruated the first time, a girl would begin to look around. Her family would begin to look around for engagement. Announcement would be made, and so girls would usually be married within a year or two of the onset of their menstrual period because they were now gifted by God to be mothers. And that's probably how old Mary was when Jesus was born. She, of course, wasn't married yet when she was pregnant by the power of the Spirit, but that was about the age. So girls were finished. The boys who moved (laughs) with school... It's like I was... I was, I was in the car with a, with a friend, and he had a bag laying on the front seat. And the person, the ladies, it was two ladies in front and, and my wife and I in the back. And he had this, there was a bottle laying on the seat in a brown bag. And the lady picked it up on the front and said, what's this? And the other lady said, oh, it's, it's a bottle of wine. I got it for my husband. The lady said, good trade. Um, <laughs> Seriously, girls were now finished with school. 
Boys were also finished with school unless they had displayed unusual ability with the text. If they could memorize, and not only memorize, but were able to understand and even explain difficult parts of the text, if they had those gifts from God, they would move on to the next level called Beth Midrash. It's from about ages 12 to 15. So it's a very gifted group of young men who are there, and they would study with a Torah teacher. Their subject matter now became the whole Old Testament, called Tanakh. So they would study that entire um, book, if, again, they were capable. Now, how many boys had those gifts? We don't know. Some suggest it's only one out of ten or one out of twenty. Some have even said one out of fifty or one out of a hundred. But it's a highly selective process. Most people didn't have the academic gifts to move to the next level of education. Some did. Those who went to age 15 and displayed... Oh, I forgot to put this in here. Let me skip over this in the interest of time. Pardon my... Those who were unusually gifted and by age 15 displayed great ability with the text. Now you're talking one out of hundreds, maybe, moved on to the third level, which is called Beth Talmud. Talmud means to interpret. They were young men who would start at age 15 and they would study with a rabbi until they were 30. Now, if before they got to 30 they didn't have the gifts, they would drop out and learn the family trade. If at age 30 they hadn't memorized the whole Tanakh and didn't display that ability, they would drop out and take up the family trade. At age 30, they would become a rabbi, or actually a Torah teacher first. How old was Jesus when he began teaching? So Jesus is following the system. Now, it's this group of young men, they studied the interpretation of the Tanakh, it's this group of young men that became disciples of a great rabbi. Now, that was an awful lot of data, but let me tell you why I brought you there. Understand that for most rabbis, they are men of great ability and with smicha. Their students were young men who were, at age 15, so knowledgeable already that many of them knew the Torah by memory and parts of the Tanakh by memory, and they would join one of these great rabbis. So the rabbi and their disciples is a highly talented group of young men who then join with the rabbi. Now, with that background, let's talk briefly about what it meant to be a disciple and then come to Jesus and us. To be a Talmud is to be covered with the dust of the rabbi. You have been highly trained in scripture. You have now gone to one of the great rabbis and requested to become his disciple. In almost every case, if I was a young man of age 15 and somehow I thought God had given me those gifts, I would seek out a rabbi and I would listen. I can't be like him. He's too good of a storyteller. I can't be like him. He's just too brilliant. I'm not that good. Here's a rabbi who's a very sensitive, caring person who loves to delight people with his interpretations of, I think I might have those gifts. At that point, I would go to that rabbi if I were a student. And I would say to him, I'd stand in the back and listen for a while, like six months, 
because he wouldn't pay any attention to me first. He'd know why I was there. And after several months, he would finally ask me, son, and I would say, may I follow you? Now, think about what I just asked him. I didn't just ask him, can I join your school? My dad will pay tuition. I didn't just ask him, can I hang around with you? What I asked him is, do you think, Rabbi, as a man of God, that I could be like you? Knowing rabbis, they were humble men, at least as history records them. The rabbi would probably say, my son, I'm very honored you would want to be like me. I'm just a man of God trying to live by the Torah and the Tanakh. Recite Leviticus. That's second grade, right? So I recite Leviticus. Very good, my son, you have the gift. Recite Deuteronomy. Okay, a little tougher there. And then, my son, the book of Amos, 17 times uses a phrase from the book of Numbers as the basis of his prophecy. Give me the 17 phrases and the prophecy he makes from each one. By memory. Oh yeah, I should have taken notes. <laughs> and he would say to me, my son, you're a gifted young man. I know your family. They work in masonry. They cut stone. Go home and be a stone cutter. And love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And always follow the Torah and the teachings. Be the godliest stonecutter in all Capernaum. Because not many ever got in. And the ones who did spent their whole... I've watched people, a rabbi with his disciples, go into the men's room, and all 20 disciples came along. <laughs> not the stall. Because what if the rabbi prays when he's finished using the washroom? We have to know how to pray. So they all stand there and wait. People, they don't want to miss a thing. By the way, there is a prayer when you finish with the washroom. Baruch atar Eloheinu melech ha'olam. Let me say in English. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, for giving us openings in our bodies. That sounds like a strange prayer. Wait till one doesn't work. Let's go to Rabbi Jesus. I tried to establish for you early that Jesus had the authority from God, yes? He has smicha, all authority. You want to follow this rabbi? I do. I can't think of a rabbi more gifted with greater authority. But if I say I want to follow him, I'm saying I want to be like him. Now what do you think? Well, let's look at Jesus. He had this Talmudim, yes? How many? At least 12. Some places there are more that are called disciples, but he had 12 in that core group. How old were they? If he fit the culture, how old were they? 
Do you understand it's very likely Jesus' disciples are sophomores in high school? Whoa, wait a minute. Every picture I've ever seen, Peter's like 60 with a beard. I'm telling you, there is very little in the Bible that even hints that these disciples aren't just kids. Jesus says to them, hey kids, have you caught any fish? We politely translate that, hey friends, but the Greek clearly says, hey kids, did you catch any fish? Now is Jesus mocking these 40-year-old men? Or are they children? Peter says, how can we pay our temple tax? Anybody 20 years old and over has to pay temple tax. The disciples are there. Peter says, how will we pay our temple tax? Jesus says, go fishing. Good idea. Catches a fish. In the fish's mouth is a coin. Enough for two temple taxes. Jesus said, Peter, that's for yours and mine. Where's the temple tax for the other guys? They're not 20. At least you need to rethink the Western tendency to make disciples 60 or 70 or 50-year-old men. You can be a 50-year-old disciple or a 90-year-old disciple, male or female. In the culture, it's very likely that Jesus started much younger than that. At least think about that. That's not a major point for me. Second, what does it tell you? Think about this. What does it tell you that Jesus chose disciples. There's only two rabbis in history that we know of that did this. He went out and he looked around and here's two brothers fishing. What does that tell you about the two brothers? They didn't get into anybody else's school. These are the C students. Honestly, these are the kids who couldn't get into somebody else's great. Honestly, they're fishing. They had tried, I'm sure, if they had any talent at all. Every Jewish kid. And Jesus, what do you think that Peter felt like when Jesus walked up? If Luke's chronology is correct, Jesus has already raised somebody from the dead, and he's already um, cast out demons. And Jesus walked up to Peter and said, Hey, you, Rocky. Come follow me. What did Jesus just say to Peter? I think you could be like me. I've heard people preach sermons and say how surprised they were that Peter dropped the nets. Are you kidding? Can you picture some kid playing basketball on the pavement? A big limo pulls up and sits there for an hour. And then Michael Jordan gets out and says, hey, I've been watching you. I think you could really be something. Why don't you come with me and I'll get you in a clinic and I'll train you and tell me that kid and say, eh, go on, Michael. I'm just going to shoot around here on the... (laughs) Come on. Peter broke Olympic records. Mom, Dad, guess what? He thinks I could be like him. And Jesus never let him forget it. At the Last Supper, he says, hey, guys, I'm leaving. Woo! Leaving? We're supposed to stay till we're 30. You've only been here three years. And Jesus said, yeah, no, I'm leaving, and you guys go out and make disciples. We got to be rabbis? Yes. They're sitting there thinking, oh, my goodness. And Jesus says, here's his words of encouragement. Remember 
You didn't choose me. I chose you. Don't ever forget it, guys. You're with me because I believed in you. I believed you could be like me by the power of the Spirit. The direct, I understand all that. But I believed in you. I picked you because I believed you could be like me. I came and found you. Go with me. Jesus says, hey guys, sail across the sea. Now remember, Galileans, A, were scared to death of water because the sea is the abyss to them. Some scholars think most of them couldn't swim. So they're sailing very carefully along the shore because they're going from Capernaum to Bethsaida. Jesus goes up on the mountainside and he, it's, it says they started sailing at evening. So let's make it 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock they start sailing. Jesus goes up on the hill. A storm came up from the east. Always from the east. Always, Sharkia they call it. The storms on the Sea of Galilee always come from the east. You get an east wind, you know you got a storm. And the disciples are in trouble. The Bible says Jesus sat there watching them all night. And they're rowing, and they're rowing, and they're praying, and they're praying. And he's watching. And finally, at 3 a.m., and I think this is the funniest passage in the New Testament, at 3 a.m., Jesus came out to the boat walking on the water. That's funny too, but not as funny as what's next. And it says, now you got to see all these high school kids in the boat. It says, and he was going to walk on by. Hey, guys. <laughs> that had to be funny later. They had to laugh. He out for a walk. And they scream, it's a ghost. And then Peter, Jesus now remember, this guy probably can't swim. And if scholars are right, he thinks that this is the abyss where the devil lives. If that's you, I want to walk to you. Now, do you think Peter thought he could walk on water? He's a fisherman, not a nudnik. Of course he doesn't think he can walk on water. Why does he do it? Do you understand how badly he wants to be like Jesus? He's willing to drown to be like his rabbi. Some great Christian scholar wrote a book about getting out of the boat. <laughs> Why weren't the other 11 walking? Think about it. You don't think they got some good stern discussion about being like the rabbi later? And then Peter steps out. If you're going to be a disciple, you're going to have to get out of the boat. You know why? Because the rabbi walks on water. And you can do no less. Unless you don't want to be a disciple. And Peter goes, see, I'm a high school teacher. I see Peter going to his buddy. <laughs> And then it says, <laughs> it says, he heard the wind, he saw the waves, and he began to doubt and get scared, and down he went. Jesus put out his hand, pulled him up, and said, help me with the text, O you of little, how about chutzpah? That's one of the rules for faith. You don't think Jesus might have said that? O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Doubt who? 
See, everybody wants to make Peter doubt Jesus. He doesn't doubt Jesus. Jesus is still standing there. Who does Peter doubt? Peter, don't doubt yourself. I chose you. I empowered you. I called you. My word is directing you. I think you can be like me. Don't lose faith in yourself. Empowered by the Spirit of God. So he chose disciples. What did they do? They went everywhere he went. Everywhere. If they could. He tried to disappear a few times and they still showed up. Did they become like him? Philip. He's chained with chains through his Achilles tendons to the gate of Hierapolis. His seven daughters are brought one after another, stripped and raped in front of his eyes. Then he's unchained and nailed to a cross while the daughters, the bodies of his seven daughters are strewn on the ground in front of him. You know what his last words are recorded to be? Father, don't hold it against them. They don't understand what they're... Were they like Jesus? You bet as far as is humanly possible, empowered by the Spirit. And then they went to make disciples. Now, let me come to us. Jesus is looking for disciples. He says to you tonight, come, Follow me. He died so that your sins could be forgiven if you accept this for yourself, so that you could be empowered by the Holy Spirit, so that every single person in this auditorium, empowered by him, directed by his word, could be like him in exactly the way he wants. Do you believe this? He picked you. And I'm not talking about picked you to be saved. I'm talking about he picked you to be disciples. He believes in you. He believes you can go out there tonight and tomorrow and by the power of his spirit, by the direction of the word, by the example of other believers that you've learned to see Jesus through and in, that you can be like him so that wherever you come from gets to see Jesus too. But you see, the question is, how badly do you want this? How much am I willing to give to be like him? And you say, I can't. I don't know the text. You ought to be embarrassed. I am. If I'm going to be like Jesus, he knew the text by the time he was 12. I got a long ways to go, but I'm going to know one more verse tomorrow than I know today, by the grace of God. You say, but I can't be like him because I'm not that intelligent. I carry a picture of my hero around with me. His name is Jonathan. I have no idea where the cameras are, but they probably can't see it anyway because it's too... Can you get... See Jonathan? 
he took my Bible class three times. Same class. We started a program on our school called Inclusive Ed. Jonathan took that class three years in a row, same identical class. I don't think he got 10 points in three years. For you see, Jonathan has Down syndrome. And he learns at the first grade level. I remember when he walked in the first day. I was scared. I'd never had kids with that kind of disability. I have a practice in my classroom. It's a private Christian school. I have a practice in my classroom where I say, we pray every day and I I have somebody keep track so we can see how God answers the prayer. So I said, would somebody be willing for this month to, to record the prayer request? Jonathan raised his hand. Jonathan, Jonathan, you can't write. So I said to the girl next to him, would you help him? She said, sure. That kid never, ever forgot a prayer request in three years. Months later, Jonathan would come up and say, how's your cousin? My cousin? Yeah, we prayed for her once. Oh, yeah. Um, she's fine. <laughs> if I wasn't feeling well, he'd say, RVL, can I get you a glass of water? You look sad today. RVL, Linda's crying. Could somebody sit by her, please, and talk to her? She's sad. Tell me that there was anyone in that class, starting with the teacher, more like Jesus than Jonathan. That kid will change less in heaven than most of us will. Because he showed all of us just exactly what Jesus was like. And I am deeply honored to tell you that I've learned as much about Jesus from this young man who has Down syndrome as I have from anyone else in the world. He's looking for disciples. He's not interested in intellectual level. He wants you to use what you got. He's interested in people who want to be like him who will accept his evaluation of you and me. People who have the fire in their chest to say, I'm not worthy, I don't deserve this, I'm a sinner, but by the grace of God, I'm going to do everything in my power. And then, I need to live with him. I had a teacher in a Jewish class, a man of God. He knew his Bible. He obeyed God in ways that I can only dream of yet. Teaching about discipleship. And he was talking to me, but kind enough not to look at me. And he said to me, any Christian that calls himself or herself a disciple of Jesus and doesn't read all four Gospels at least once a month is a liar. You couldn't possibly know Jesus well enough to be like him if you read the Gospels once a year. How badly do you want it? See, God believes in you He will equip you. He's given you his teaching. But you've got to supply the desire. 
And if you and I don't walk out of here tonight with a fire in our chest to say, Jesus, help us to become more like you, it isn't going to happen. And that was his method of changing the world. He got 12 guys and seven women, one failed miserably, the other 19, 18, made disciples, who made disciples, who made disciples. And guess what? We're here tonight. Because it reached us. You going to break the chain? What would happen to Western culture if this church building full of people walked out of here with the fire that Peter felt tonight? If those 19, 18 changed the whole world by the grace of God, what are several thousand? And you know what? I don't know you, but I know me. I don't think most of us believe that for a minute. He does! It is enough for a student to be like his teacher. P.S. I teach this in high school. Some of you have high school students in your homes. My sympathy. No, just kidding. (laughs) Great group. I love them. Nothing I would prefer more even being here than to be in a group in front of a group of high school kids. When they catch the vision... I've had classrooms full of kids where half of them left the room without touching the floor. These kids are absolutely and totally convinced that if God believes in them, for some kids it breaks them because they've never had anyone in the whole world ever believe in them. Not even their own parents ever thought they would amount to anything. But I also know, without exception, I don't think I've ever had it when I had the two-week discipleship unit that we do in the life of Jesus for, for seniors, that about a period or two later, There'll be a kid at my door. This year, big football player. Tears running down his face. I blew it. I left here and was going to try to be like Jesus. I got to my locker and I... And there won't be many of us who won't have exactly that same experience. Come with me. These young men, in my opinion, followed him right to the end. It's a model of a building. Jesus is in there, and they're beating on him. What do you think a disciple, a Talmud, felt like when his rabbi was being beaten? And then somebody walked up to Peter, notice how close he was, and said... You were one of his. Oh, no, 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 you got the wrong guy. And then someone else. You were with him. I saw you. I swear to God. I don't know this man. And then your accent, you speak with the brogue. You're a Galilean. You're with him. May God damn me. And Jesus turned 
and looked at Peter. Peter, a Talmud who doesn't know his rabbi, it can't exist. Who swears to God he never met the, who asked God to damn him if people, there is not a Jewish rabbi in the history of the world who would have kept the Talmud that swore in public he doesn't know the rabbi. And Peter knew it. He left and wept. And then what's he doing? He's back fishing. It's all gone. But this isn't an ordinary rabbi. Because this rabbi looks him up. Hey, Rocky. Hey, Jesus. Do you really love me? Jesus, yes. Don't say this. Yes. Then feed my sheep. Uh, uh, Rocky, do you love me? Yes, Jesus. Then feed my sheep, Rocky. Rocky, do you even like me? Jesus, don't. Yes! Then feed my lambs. Now be a Jew for a minute. Who feeds the flock? The shepherd. Who was the shepherd of this flock? Jesus. When Jesus says to Peter, Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. What is he saying? Be like me. Be like me. Be like me. And when you get to that point where you deny Jesus by action or lack of action, turn to him and say, I still love you. I still want to be like you. Please. And he'll say, get up. Dust yourself off. Believe in yourself. Get back in the text and try it again. There's a whole world out there that desperately needs to know what Jesus is like. And the closest they're ever going to come, for many of them, are all you folks who are going to be like him. Come, he said. Follow me. Please stand. In every rabbi's life, the time would come where he would send the disciples out. Paul did it at Ephesus to his 12 disciples. When Jesus sent his 12 out, he said, go. But I go with you. Only rabbi in history who goes with his disciples. Luke starts his gospel, very Jewish, an old priest who can't bless because he lost his voice. He ends his gospel with a man who isn't even a priest and isn't supposed to be blessing, who raises his hands and claims the priesthood. Listen, as you go to be disciples, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his shalom. 
name of Jesus, the Messiah, our rabbi. Amen. Go with God. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You can help us reach more people by going to iTunes, subscribing, and leaving a review. And if you like what we're doing here, tell a friend about us. In an age of social media, word of mouth is still the most powerful way to spread the message.